0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Just how cyber safe are we really? This year saw the government ban the Chinese-owned social media application TikTok from government phones. The crackdown came as Australia found itself in the eye of a cybercrime storm as big businesses from your Medibanks to Optus found themselves as victims of hackers. Now, the government is scrambling to crack down on cybercrime and build up the nation's defences. But this week on Download This Show, is it too little too late? And for you and I, is changing your password regularly enough to truly protect you? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show and yes... We are talking about all things cybersecurity, which is, of course, why we invite back Catherine Manstead, Cyber CX Director, Senior Fellow in the Practice of National Security at the ANU. God, that makes you sound like a spy, Catherine. Uh, Welcome back to Download the Show.
0: Wonderful to be here.
1: You wouldn't admit to it even if I asked you, would you?
0: If I would, that would send you down in circles of um, further confusion. But no, alas,
1: I'm not that cool. 12 part podcast onto that. Thank you very much. <laughs> and joining us also this week, a man who is no stranger to all things cybersecurity, Josh Taylor, reporter at The Guardian. Welcome.
2: Great to be back again, and I can confirm I'm not a spy either.
1: Yeah, see, somehow (laughs) when you say it, I don't believe it. I don't know what this says about our relationship, Josh. Look, when we're talking about cybersecurity, it is a sort of a broad topic, but I do want to pick out one particular app that seems to have been talked about very heavily in relation to security over the last few years, and that's, of course, TikTok. Now, there'll be people listening to this that have been listening on to the show for a couple of weeks and, and know that there's been news around it, but why is... TikTok, the, the seemingly harmless video sharing app. Why has it become so controversial, Josh, do you think? Well,
2: it essentially comes down to because it got so popular in such a short amount of time and because of the company's links to China. The app does have some relative links to China and the, the implications that come around that, in, in particular with the, the Chinese national security law, that means that in certain sep- circumstances that the government can request information and data A lot of people in Western countries in particular sort of started seeing this as a huge
1: security risk. And it's become a real target of of politicians as well, Catherine, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You're right, TikTok gets all the headlines these days, the good ones and the bad. In many senses, I think it's a canary in the coal mine for a couple of things. And it's not the only social media app with connections back to the Chinese government, potentially. WeChat is another app with a huge user base uh, across Western democracies as well. And, of course, All social media apps collect a huge amount of data and have been used for disinformation, propaganda and other nefarious things. I think Josh is right, though. TikTok has grabbed our attention because it burst onto the scene almost without warning and because of really uh, real concerns around that data collection and analysis piece uh, and also potentially the way in which it can be used to monitor, surveil or manipulate the content that people receive. But I do want to make another point, and and that is this one. I think we're still grappling with the idea that national security is now something that affects ordinary people. It's worth calling out that the millions of users of TikTok in Australia aren't used to being in the centre of a national security stouch. There are people who make their livelihoods as content creators, Right. And it used to be that national security was very much a matter of high politics and diplomacy. Now, in a really digitalised world, in a really connected, globalised, technology-driven world, a lot of national security uh, issues affect individuals and decisions about them affect real, ordinary Australians. And I don't think... We fully gripped up how to go about addressing those concerns. And
1: when we talk about this idea that national security is now something that everyday people with a TikTok account or, you know, people who are, you know, content makers on TikTok, it's now part of their conversation. How has that played out, do you think?
0: I think it's playing out slowly and in fits and starts. And, again, it's not just TikTok. Think also about the way the government's grappling with things recently like Chinese-made surveillance cameras, right? There was a bit of a furor in Australia and in other countries around the world about surveillance cameras manufactured by companies that have affiliations back to state-owned entities in China. Again, similar concerns, right, that these are potentially vulnerable devices that could lead to security failures. Maybe they've got back doors. Maybe there's a way for the Chinese government to access that data. Um, And the Australian government made a decision, for example, to rip those cameras out of government buildings. But they've never really had a conversation with the Australian public, many of whom, many businesses, critical infrastructure providers, journalists, activists, vulnerable people use these devices too. We've never really had that conversation that goes, hey, this is where the government sees risk. This is what you can do to manage this risk. This is why government made this decision and how you can keep yourself safe. I think we haven't yet figured out what our approach is here and it's similar with social media. We, we have fits and starts. We've got warnings from government, very general warnings, saying be careful of social media, all social media, but not really a fine-grained distinction of why governments see some platforms as carrying more risk than others and not really good advice about how to mitigate that risk short of, you know, unplugging your phone or uh, (laughs) undownloading TikTok, right? And that's not going to work for everyone.
1: No, I just want to pick up on something uh, that Catherine said there, which is the comparison between something like TikTok and something like WeChat. Why is it that WeChat doesn't get the same level of attention that's been given over to TikTok, do you think, Josh?
2: I did a little bit of reporting about this recently, and I think there's a couple of factors here. So firstly, politicians do use WeChat as a way to reach a very large constituency that is the Chinese-Australian community. The other factor here is that I think that a lot of it does go under the radar because it's in Mandarin, it's in it's not in English. The reason why we, we ended up in this space where the government has now banned it from TikTok from um, government devices is because there was this report commissioned out of the Home Affairs Department that, that went and had a look at a whole bunch of apps and gave advice on the security measures of that. We haven't actually seen a copy of that report at all. Out of that review came the TikTok ban. Goes back to Catherine's point, if we're going to be in a point where the public needs to be educated about why these apps are risky or why these devices are risky and everything like that. We need to actually know what the risk actually is rather than sort of, you know, hush, hush, oh, it's bad, or you be wary of your privacy kind of thing.
1: Catherine, you said something earlier that I sort of stuck in my mind, which is this question of the governments, and, and indeed it's governments, right, because isn't specifically linked to Australia, haven't been overly clear with the public what their issues are with where the data goes. Is there a particular reason for that? Is there an issue where if they start talking about it in granular detail, what they do and don't know, it will expose how much governments do understand of that infrastructure?
0: It's a classic national security and intelligence dilemma, right? You might as a government have access to knowledge or insights, but you don't want to share them because as soon as you do, you worry that your ability to garner more of those more of that access or more of those insights will be cut off uh, because suddenly your adversaries know how you're understanding the world uh, and also maybe you might blow some sensitive sources as well as your methods. I think that is a very important argument and it holds a lot of water and we always need to be careful about what we call on government to reveal so that it doesn't, you know, put those, those sources and methods at undue risk. But I, what I do think is there is a space for even more generalised um, risk-based discussion from government about these types of matters. The other thing, though, and this is where it becomes really hard, is that a lot of this space, when we're talking about tech risk, there are no um, smoking guns, to use a, a kind of an analogy that the Americans like to use from time to time. <laughs> there's no smoking guns. There's only loaded guns. And that's actually hard, right? So, And that applies whether we're talking TikTok or um, vision cameras or different forms of, of cyber risk. You don't necessarily have facts to point to, to say, hey, a bad thing happened here and and these people did it. All you have is the ability to say, we think there's risk because the Chinese government could access the data should they choose to. Um, And that's a really difficult place to be in. You might not have evidence of wrongdoing, but you have a really strong argument to say that wrongdoing could happen and we're not prepared to accept that risk. It's too high for us to accept.
1: Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide, normally to the week in media, technology, and culture. But this week, we are focusing all on cybersecurity, hacking, and scams, the complete lot. And we, are, when we are talking about people's cybersecurity here, it has not been a great couple of years. We've seen 10 million Australians impacted by uh, the hacks on Optus, 4 million Australians impacted by hacks on Medibank, 7.9 million uh, people impacted by Latitude Financial. Is it? getting worse, Josh, or are we just hearing about it more because they're being forced to report on it more?
2: I think it's a combination of both. I think we had several high profile ones affecting millions and millions of customers. But I think that more broadly speaking, that this stuff has constantly been on the rise. There's constantly cyber attacks going on. They've just had a couple of years of of quite successful targets. After the Optus one happened, I think people were focused on it and thinking about what Uh, the privacy implications are for them and what they can do to protect themselves. But it's almost at the point now where it has to be a really big one for me to actually do a story on it because (laughs) it's just happened so often. It's just like, unless it's a particularly sensitive data. That's the
1: most depressing thing you've ever said.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's just the reality that we live in now. These things happen so often that people are not paying attention to them that much anymore. But that means it's also very, very important for businesses to try and do their best to prevent this sort of stuff from happening in the first place.
1: Catherine, it's been said by some of the, the hackers who have kind of popped up in articles that Australians are stunningly easy targets. Why? Why do you think we are?
0: Well, firstly, whatever a hacker says, I always take with a grain of salt or several. I mean, <laughs> we, we, if you give a platform to these, these hackers and they love nothing more than kind of beating their chest and saying how wonderful they are and how stupid everyone else is. Australians, like any kind of Western, Anglo-speaking, wealthy economy, are going to be high-profile, victims or targets for these types of groups, precisely because one, (laughs) we speak English. And once you've developed a scam or you've developed some type of phishing email that works in the UK and in the US or Canada, just bring it on down to Australia. And we are a wealthy economy and we're perceived as such. We're seen as having deep pockets. And ultimately for cyber criminals, it's a business. So they look for entities that they think are going to be willing to pay.
1: Is there a general sense of where these large-scale hacks or these you know very coordinated scam campaigns come from I mean everyone sort of
2: defaults to just say Russia but I think it's probably you know that it's a very lucrative market you know we've seen a lot of the attacks in recent years sort of attributed to people out of Russia it's not it's not really clear whether it's a it's a state-sponsored attack it doesn't appear to be in a lot of these cases but If you're talking about more, I guess, malicious ones and and targeted at government, the attribution tends to be more towards China. But from a purely commercial standpoint, a lot of it does come out of Russia.
1: Catherine, I mean we're talking about 13.2 million Australians exposed to scams each year. Is it all coming from Russia or is it a bit more complicated than that, do you think?
0: I guess you're right. Not all cybercrimes are the same. I think about scams is a little bit like the digital equivalent of pickpocketing. It's high volume, it's everywhere. Every kind of low-level low-level criminal can pile in on that. Whereas when we're talking about the optus and medibank's of the world where we've got cyber extortion at play, so these are more organised groups, they're your gangs and they often do operate out of Eastern Europe, Russia, of course. Scammers, again, global business. A lot of it isn't inside Australia's shores, though, and that's what makes it really problematic for Australian law enforcement trying to crack down on this. You've got the most pernicious volume crime of the 21st century, where most of the criminals, the perps, aren't people that you can go and arrest uh, very easily because they're offshore uh, and they're often in countries that are relative safe havens for them because either they don't want to or they can't uh, prosecute them. Josh, I did
1: want to talk to you about a a particular kind of scamming that's really come to the fore in the last couple of months. They reckon uh, in the first quarter of 2023, about 1,700 Australians were victims of sexual extortion, sextortion. What does that actually look like and who's it really affecting?
2: Yeah, so that's essentially what they call image-based abuse now, which is when someone gets some nude photos of you and then they threaten to send it out to your family or post it online. Interestingly, um, the e Commissioner came out recently and said when she was starting up a few years ago, overwhelmingly the reports came from from young women and now the tables have reversed and most of the reports about image-based abuse and, and exploitation come from young men. So they're, they're the ones who are getting um, exploited, I guess, or t- attempted exploitation.
1: Why is that?
2: Yeah, that's one of the things that's not really completely clear at the moment. I think that uh, it's just something that's flipped since COVID and it's not really clear why they're why they're doing it.
1: I can see you delicately walking around the idea <laughs> that, that, that men are more likely to take photos of themselves Is is the inference. We don't know that to be true though, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Can I wade into these difficult (laughs) Yes, Please, (laughs) please, save us. (laughs) (laughs) The eSafety Commissioner has some case studies on their website about real-world Australians who've been impacted by sextortion, which we should add is a crime, right, (laughs) in no uncertain terms. And one of the case studies that she has is where uh, people are engaging on dating apps or social media and maybe they're having a consensual video conversation and and maybe they don't have clothes on, right? They've been induced or coerced or kind of tricked into having a a nude video conversation. But what they don't realise is that they've also been catfished at the same time. It's not, uh, you know, in in the case of a hypothetical young man, it's not a a hot man or woman on the other side of the line. It is a criminal and they're also non-consensually recording that um, and then going about trying to extort. But the other layer to this, and I know you talk a little bit, um, Mark, about chat GPT and deep fakes and AI mm. on this podcast. It has come up on
1: occasion, you know. Um, it, ha- it has come up here and there.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's a little bit zeitgeisty these days. <laughs> but that's one of the angles that's really concerning here. And the FBI actually came out in June saying they've seen a real uptick in fake generated images and video being used in the crime of sextortion. So, you know, it was disturbing enough before, but now we're thinking about a circumstance where you haven't shared or, or made available that authentic content, but someone's got access to videos or images of, of you because you're a human <laughs> in this digital age and you have a social media profile or there's this footage of you out there and there's that next layer to that sextortion crime, which is making up fake content to extort you. And to me, that's just another horrifying turn in what was already a pretty dirty and horrifying crime to begin with.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point because it's the laziest retort that get, comes back to people who are the victims of image-based abuse, which is, well, you shouldn't have taken the photo in the first place. And I think that's why we were so awkwardly dancing around the why are there more men than women reporting, right? And the thing is, in an era where you can digitally generate things that don't actually exist in real life, advice like that it's very limited in its effectiveness, right, Josh?
2: Yeah, it basically becomes a mute point. We're nearing the stage of reality collapse where we're not sure what's going to be real and what's not. And this is one of the worst aspects of it that, you know, anyone can generate this sort of imagery of you and you, you can have no control over, it. Unless all the AI technology that we're using, all the generative AI technology are, have guardrails in place to prevent this sort of stuff from happening. But we're already seeing that it's it's already out of control.
1: There's always going to be smaller operators that are harder to to regulate. Can you perceive of guardrails that would effectively stop things like this happening,
0: Catherine? Just to add a note of optimism to the conversation. Well, how very <laughs> dare you? Do you
1: even know what show you're on? <laughs>
0: <laughs> there, there are already some things in place, not on the kind of content development side. I mean, the genie's out of the bottle in my mind. There will always be unscrupulous providers of increasingly cheap deep fake content generators. But on the other side, in terms of the distribution, there's already some pretty good takedown services. So if you are or have been a victim of this type of activity, you can alert platforms like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, OnlyFans and so forth, and they will act to take that down. You know, there is something that can already be done. It's not a full solution, though, of course. And of
1: course, when we talk about solutions, I think that it kind of has to be viewed in sort of a a multi-pronged approach, right? It's not just our responsibility. It's not just government's responsibility. It's not just corporations' responsibility. It's some sort of combination of of all three. Let's just start with... Us, right? Like, is it possible to ensure better cyber health that you can see, Josh?
2: Yeah, so I think the best thing that anyone can do is sort of make an assessment of what data is there about, about me online. What companies have my data? Am I comfortable with that level level of data? Do, have they are they holding it on for too long? Basic cybersecurity stuff like making sure you've got two factor authentication on everything, and you don't recycle passwords, and you have password managers. A lot of the tech companies like Apple and Google now we're moving towards this stage where we won't have to enter in passwords all the time, and I think. When we get to that sort of past key kind of situation where you're not having to remember all these passwords, I think that will go a long way to reduce the amount of times that people have their accounts broken into or uh, hacked and everything like that. But you can always do the right thing and protect yourself as much as possible. And then we'll probably get on to the next stage that like a company or a government might inadvertently hold the wrong sort of data and it gets leaked out so that you can only protect yourself so much.
1: I know we've painted it on a very broad canvas here. That's not the analogy, but let's imagine that it worked. Um, Are there things that are sort of obvious that can be done now that, that you don't see people doing that perhaps we should be engaging in in a more thoughtful, intentional manner?
0: I think Josh has hit the highlights there in terms of some of those basic security hygiene things you can do. The other one, and this is not going to make you popular at parties, but particularly when it's more fringe apps, right? Like, I'm not talking about your, your Facebook and your Instagram, because I understand if you want to be a functioning member of society, sometimes you just got to bite the bullet and, and get online. But dating apps or other kind of random apps that you download and, and add a picture of your face and it turns you into a, a duck or something... I would have a look at the terms and services or if you couldn't be bothered reading through that, have a have a quick Google online to see what they do with things and what they say they do with your privacy, with the ability for you to own your own data, with their data retention policy. Do they say they're going to delete it? Hey, they might not at the end of the day, but at least if they're saying they're going to do the right things and they've thought about this, they've got a policy around it, I would feel more comfortable sharing images and, and content about myself in those types of areas.
1: And then let's look at the, the corporations, right? So, the big companies that, you know, we interact with <laughs> unavoidably day in, day out. Josh, what are the sorts of things you'd like to see, whether it's regulation or in, just in terms of their own internal behaviour that deal and protect us on and our cybersecurity? I think
2: Catherine sort of nailed the point there. I think one of the easiest things that, that the government can do to sort of, I guess, regulate what businesses do is... So firstly, they should only ever keep data that they need and only for, keep it for as long as they need to. They're supposed to do that now, but it's obviously... We're seeing, you know, with latitude and things like that, that this, that's often not the case. There are so many stories that you get out of someone actually bothering to read the terms and conditions for apps and finding out what they have the liberty to, to collect. I think if we... Were serious, and we wouldn't have this super long terms and conditions kind of document that no one's going to read. You should just have a standard. This is what we collect, and this is how we collect it. And we're seeing now a lot of the apps like Apple sort of having a sort of a, a data hygiene sort of screen that you can see what they're collecting and stuff like that. If we, if we just had more of that, people would be able to understand it and know what they're handing over and, and be able to you know decline when they wanted to reject certain things like that. I think that's probably the easiest way to to start at least.
0: What do you think, Catherine?
1: Are there things you'd like to see corporations do differently today?
0: because we're just going around and around in circles agreeing with each other. Uh, let me agree. Once again with the job and <laughs> so there was a bit of research that came out of the US many years ago that said if you read the terms and services of everything you engage with online it would take it would be a full-time job and it would take about a third of of your given kind of time in a year. Like it's just not possible to do that. So I think things where government can help us simplify that. What I would add though and, and what I was kind of saying before is where it is a bit edge case and you are sharing images just you know, for those ones, on your Bumble or whatever your dating app is, just just read it there before you kind of give everything away that is kind of that really full, detailed, personal, intimate information about you that maybe you don't want out in the ether. But the other one comes back to this piece around data and privacy. And we know the government's had a long-standing reform agenda in place for Uh, privacy. And that was started under the previous government. Since all of these data breaches happened from about September last year, uh, that has been accelerated. And I think that can only be a good thing. One of the things in particular that I think needs to happen is that the market needs to be able to almost price in the cost of losing or inappropriately treating people's data. And that's actually, in my mind, a huge market failure in our digital world. If you're a corporation, you have a good sense of how much it costs to go and delete and find data. And the answer is, costs a lot. It costs more to, to go and delete it than it does just to hold it indefinitely. And you certainly have a good sense of the value of the data that you hold. And the government has already increased fines on organisations that do bad things with data. And I think there's more that we can do to help corporations understand what their obligations are and help them price in the risk of what happens if they have too much data or they don't do the right things by data that they hold.
1: It's interesting listening to you talk my brain just jumps to the the word punishment, right? And I've always slightly braced at the idea that corporations who are the victims of hacks should be punished when when your data gets uh, kind of absorbed by a hacker, but there's a part of me that just wonders until there's a significant negative outcome for your uh, consumer's data being hacked. I question how seriously a corporation is going to take security. How damaging is the reputational risk of an Optus or a Medibank and how much of an impact does it really have? I wonder that allowing the market to punish them is enough, Catherine?
0: No, that's why punishment, fines, the government has a role here. There's a collective action problem as well, right? For example, if my data is caught up in a leak, a small bit of my data, it's a small cost to me as an individual, a small loss to me, but aggregated across maybe a million other people affected by the same data breach, that starts to have a huge hit to the economy and potentially a hit to national security when you think about all of the follow-on things that can be done with that data. So there's a big role for government to play here. And I wouldn't say it's necessarily about punishment. I would say it's more about aligning losses, right? And that's something governments and the legal system does all the time, making sure that the loss falls where it is appropriate to fall. That doesn't mean you're necessarily victim-blaming corporations that get hacked. It means you're making sure that where loss has occurred, that that loss is going to fall to the organisation that can bear it most and that has the most responsibility for it, which goes to that broader question about getting that market um, signal and that market valuation of data right. Because unless corporations know how to value my data, unless they've got a benchmark that they're looking across the the corridor and seeing how other corporations value that data and value what will happen if they do something wrong with it, they are rightly not going to be able to act because they're not going to be able to price in the risk appropriately of of what happens when they, they mess up with data. And that's where I think government has a role to play and in some sense would be welcomed by corporate Australia because it gives a little bit of clarity on an issue where, frankly, there's not much clarity now.
1: Josh, as has been mentioned, the government has got a cybersecurity strategy that is underway. What's missing out of that strategy that you think is essential and and is going to make a difference in people's lives?
2: One of the things that they are looking at with the Privacy Act at the moment is is making it easier for consumers to actually take these companies to court and things like that on on an individual basis and say, you've breached my privacy, you, you should pay me compensation. When we see these sorts of things come up now, it's, it generally tends to be through class action processes, which a lot of people don't really want to get involved in and all that sort of stuff. But we, we've got the telecommunications industry on Buntsman where if you've got a complaint about something that Telco is doing that they're not doing right, it has to go through a whole process and then they'll make a finding and, and they'll compensate you and things like that if you've done wrong. Maybe we need something like that for like a cybersecurity ombudsman where you say, you know, my data has been kept wrongly and then someone can go investigate for you and provide an adequate outcome. Something like that just make it easier for people to feel like they have more control over over what companies are collecting and how they're using your data.
1: It has been said that uh, Australia has been in a a cyber slumber and there are plans afoot to make Australia the most cyber secure country in the world. Not my words, I'm paraphrasing there. Do you think that's actually something we can achieve, Catherine?
0: I think it's a noble objective and I think we actually need that type of bold, ambitious thinking to really step up our cybersecurity game. I don't think we can get by with um, I- incremental patches to our... Um, cybersecurity legislation and regulation and the way government departments and corporations think about cybersecurity. That hasn't really worked to date and it's not going to work with all of the challenges we face in the future, cybersecurity, criminals, the rise of AI and chat GPT and all of these things. So I think it's incredibly welcome that the signalling from the government, you're paraphrasing our cyber minister, Claire O'Neill there, who says that she wants us to be this, by 2030, the most cybersecurity com- country in the world. I think we need that kind of ambitious um, kind of rallying call otherwise we won't make some really tough changes to the way we're doing things now and those tough changes has to happen around culture around regulation around where government invests its limited cyber budget to keep australians safe it's it's not it's it's not terrible at the moment but it's it's not working as well as it could
2: the only other thing I would add is that prior to this period of data breaches and hackers, hacks that we've gone through, we went through a period of a lot of national security law being passed in Australia. And a lot of that stuff does require the collection of data, the weakening of encryption in a lot of ways. We've got the Online Safety Act where they're potentially looking at collecting more sensitive data about how people sort of access online pornography and things like that. So I think that while the government has a sort of noble intentions about cybersecurity, we need to also think about what the privacy implications are of the laws that the Australian government is implementing on its own citizenry as well. So it's all well and good to say we've got to protect Australia from the rest of the world, but what's happening here and what data is being collected at the same time on, on its own population
1: and how is that being used? And with that, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our guests this week. Josh Taylor, reporter at The Guardian Australia. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me again. And Catherine Manstead, Cyber CX Director and Senior Fellow in the Practice of National Security. Definitely not a spy from the ANU. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. My pleasure. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show.